0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Republicans have very little statewide power, but 2022 could change that with races for governor and U.S. Senate. The state GOP has chosen Christy Burton-Brown to help turn around the ship.
1: Our party has faced this before in Colorado, where we had no power at the state government level, and we had to say, how are we going to reach out to voters again?
0: how she answers that question this time around, plus issues she thinks can attract unaffiliated voters, and the Trump brand's effect on Colorado's Republican Party. Then you're helping us celebrate service workers who show grace even when customers are crabby in the pandemic.
2: Sometimes if people have a bad day, we understand that, you know, these are crazy times. So we, we try to deal with it with compassion.
3: Because of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms, with spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community, many giving as Evergreen members, donating what feels
4: affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Republicans in Colorado have been on a losing streak. Christy Burton-Brown hopes to reverse it. She is the state GOP's new party chair, a constitutional law attorney from Centennial, and will spend the first half of the show discussing her plans and some of her biography. Christy, thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. In 2014, Republicans held the state Senate, the offices of Attorney General and Secretary of State, and one of Colorado's U.S. Senate seats. Now, all of those are in Democratic hands. One of your opponents in the election for chair, former Colorado Secretary of State Scott Gessler, described the party as, quoting here, in a horrible, bad, no good, very lousy place. Where is he right? Where is he wrong?
1: Well, you know, what I think is that our party has faced this before in Colorado. We have been in a similar state decades ago where we had no power at the state government level and we had to say, how are we going to reach out to voters again? And that's the place where we are. And the answer is that we have to brand ourselves and talk about the issues that swing unaffiliated voters care about in Colorado.
0: Give me a few examples.
1: Absolutely. One of the top ones is education. The COVID pandemic has highlighted the importance of education with our children. And and I'm a mom of two elementary school age children. It has highlighted that issue to parents all across our state. So choice in education, more options in education, higher teacher pay. These are the kind of things that unaffiliated swing voters, moms like me in the suburbs of Colorado, deeply care about.
5: Do you
0: think then the Republican Party in Colorado has not talked enough about education? And what has it been talking about that maybe it should de emphasize? I mean, if you're going to make room for one message, you got to de emphasize another, right?
1: So I I actually think the problem is that the Republican Party in Colorado, we've often let ourselves I'll be honest, get cornered by Democrats, by mainstream media who tried to define the issues for us. When instead, I think we need to paint the positive vision of leadership, the proactive things that we are going to do to make Colorado a better state and create a better future for our jobs, our kids, people's opportunity to explore the American dream. So education is absolutely the top of the list. Also tax cuts. Voters are very in favor of getting to vote on taxes and they often want to see their taxes cut that's an issue we've constantly talked about that needs to stay at the forefront but education has to get up there at the top of the list because our positions are right it's not like our positions have changed as republicans we need to talk about it more
0: do i hear you partly blaming folks like me for the state of the republican party right now i mean you talk about the media being responsible here i don't know what that means like when 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 someone like you comes on, I ask what your issues are. Uh, can you put a finer point on?
1: So what I said is that the Republican Party has let ourselves get quartered by the Democrats and the mainstream media when they choose the issues to talk about. Because I mean, I've worked with the media for years. You know that often the media asks about certain issues that they think are the most important news. I don't fault you for that. But what I'm saying is that what Republicans need to do is say, here are the issues we believe the voters actually care about. Here are the issues that define our party. Here is how we're going to lead for voters here in Colorado.
0: Well, there's a tension now in policies you've mentioned a few times, which is tax cuts. And at the same time, you'd like teachers to be paid more. That strikes me as a tricky wicket, a sticky wicket. uh, If you're cutting taxes on one side and then trying to boost salaries on another, square those for us.
1: Sure. It all comes down to how you see government. If you think the only way to boost teachers' pay is to make the taxpayers pay more, you're not looking at ways to cut. Government waste. I believe there's a lot of current spending that goes on that is wasteful in government, a lot of payment that's already forked out to bureaucracies, unnecessary regulations. You cut that, you have more money to pay teachers.
0: Take that down to the specific for me. Uh, What would you no longer have the state government spending money on?
1: Oh, goodness. Or local governments for that? How much time do you have?
0: (laughs) I mean, enough for you to answer that question for sure.
1: Sure. So I used to do policy analysis in the state legislature for some of our state senators and state reps. And I mean, you look when you look through the budget, you can just start knocking things off all these extra programs that government pays for that are really better paid for in the nonprofit world and in the community. There's just so many things government has their hand in that if we could we could take a pen to the budget, I could certainly give you a whole list of things. And I think I think here's the point. Well, name one. I I mean, can you name one? Uh, absolutely. I mean, we pay we pay so much in, in media. We pay so much in, oh goodness, in promoting, oh, I'll take this as an even example, promoting tourism in Colorado. I think that's an important thing for our economy. But if it came down to it, is it more important to boost our teachers' pay? or make a video on tourism that the business industry, the business sector could also create and promote their own industries. It is better for the government to increase teacher pay and for the nonprofit and business world to make their own tourism videos. I mean, again, we could go down the list. That's a small example. I think the point is this. Most Coloradans believe that teachers do a ton of work and should be paid for what they do. And there's a lot of things we could cut to pay teachers more.
0: President Trump lost Colorado by nearly 13 percentage points in 2020. Over the past five years, Democrats have overtaken Republicans in voter registration here. And in January, right after the protesters stormed the U.S. Capitol, almost 5,000 Republicans left the state party. Did the former president hurt Republicans' chances in Colorado?
1: I think what we've seen happen in Colorado is that our voters here are very independent-minded. They often do base their votes on personality. There's no question about that. That's why you've seen Colorado voters historically vote sometimes for a Democrat, for governor, but then Republicans for secretary of state, attorney general and treasurer and a Republican senator sometimes. So we see split ticket votes in Colorado a lot. It's very personality based. And I think this just feeds into my message as the state chairman. We are going to be focused not in the past, but in the future, on 2022. It is going to be a Colorado-focused year, Colorado-centric issues, and what true leadership in Colorado centered on our jobs, our kids, the American dream. What does that look like? And who are our candidates who can best promote the message that the people of Colorado and many suburban moms like me, that's a big chunk of our unaffiliated voters in Colorado, what they want to hear about and talk about.
0: I mean, it's interesting you say you don't want to focus on the past. And yet there is talk from Mr. Trump himself of a potential 2024 run for president. So the discussion of whether Trump is good for Colorado's Republican Party is not just a discussion in the past. It is related to the future.
1: So I'm, I'm going to post to you that before we have 2024, we have 2022. And it is my job as chairman. I'm chairman for the next two years, unless I decide to run again. And so 2022 is an election where we are going to battle Jared Polis. We are going to battle Michael Bennett. And there are other statewide seats, The re, a redistricted state legislature. That is where my eyes are focused and where the eyes of the state Republican Party is focused in Colorado is 2022 comes first. That's where we are right now.
0: Are you having conversations in kind of wooing candidates, let's say, for governor, for instance? And what do those conversations sound like?
1: So the Republican Party is is required to be neutral in primaries. We welcome anyone to step up to the plate and run. Uh, I will tell you the kind of candidates that I would love to see step into these, these seats and run are people who really understand Colorado. To represent Colorado, you've gotta understand our state. You can't be sold out to special interests in DC. You, You have to be part of your community. You have to have built a life where you live in Colorado, have a family, have a career. All these things that create stories that people identify with. People in Colorado need to see themselves in the candidates who run. And those candidates need a story of the American dream and how they've been able to live that here in Colorado and how that enables them to lead on the issues that matter.
0: So that is the kind of candidate that you'd like to see. Indeed. It's interesting, you talk about story. Say a few more words about that. Do you, th- do you think that uh, past candidates, have you seen unstoried candidates or at least candidates that haven't told their story well enough? Is that is that part of where the Republicans are in Colorado right now?
1: Well, let me, let me give you an example, actually. It's a great question. Governor Owens, the last Republican governor, actually was a perfect example of this. When he campaigned, he talked about three things. He talked about a specific transportation project that mattered to people in Colorado that helped them get to work and get home. And he talked about more school options, specifically in minority areas in Colorado. And he talked about a tax cut. Very Three very definable things that he could pair with stories of real lives, real people. He campaigned very clearly on those things, and he won.
0: Christy Burton Brown, he was also incredibly moderate. I mean, in contrast to a Lauren Boebert or a Ken Buck, you know, a, a Bill Owens is a very different kind of Republican. Is the state Republican Party headed in an Owensy direction?
1: You know, I think Colorado is a very diverse state. What we need is candidates who represent their district. Ken Buck represents his district. Lauren Boebert is well-loved and represents her district very well. Bill Owens ran statewide and represented Colorado statewide at the time. That is what um, we should be focused on as a political party. And any candidate who jumps into the race and wants to run should ask themselves, do I represent my district and, and how exactly would I fight for the people
0: I mentioned that there was uh, something of a, I guess i call it a mini exodus of Republicans after the protesters stormed the U.S. Capitol. That insurrection came in part because President Trump claimed the election was a fraud. And I'll just say that this week, Logan Grover of Erie, Colorado, was arrested on four counts related to unauthorized entry of the U.S. Capitol, according to a Facebook post, which the FBI included in its statement of fact about his arrest. Grover wrote, if you accept the reality that the election was stolen, then you cannot accept Biden as the new president, and neither can I. I guess I'd like to ask you very plainly, do you, like Mr. Grover, believe the election was fraudulent?
1: I believe, I have no association whatsoever with Mr. Grover, and I believe that Joe Biden is in the White House. He's the president of the United States. And I'm going to repeat what I said before, which is that my focus is on the future, It is in saying, how can voters here in Colorado be assured that their vote is going to count because we have the right kind of election integrity here in Colorado going into 2022. We need powerful teams of poll watchers, election judges, people who are going to pay attention to votes being cast accurately here in Colorado. We want everyone to vote and everyone to have a say. We want that to be secure. That's something your political party shouldn't matter in wanting that for all people. But I am focused on the future. I will repeat that over and over again. We're going to talk about Colorado. In 2022.
0: So much of the future, though, is inspired and informed by the past. So your views of what happened in the election are naturally related to what you do to fix what you might see as a broken system. So do you believe that Colorado's elections have integrity?
1: I believe you can always look at an election and find ways to improve. And and that's why I think what matters is that people need to be assured here in Colorado that their vote is counted. You, No one should ever sit at home and say, oh, well, I have so many doubts about the system that I'm gonna sit home and not even bother to vote. That's a sure way to lose. Every single Republican should get out there and cast their vote in 2022. And if they are concerned about any of the systems in Colorado, the way to fix that is to be a part of the process. And make sure the system works for everyone. That's, that's incumbent on all of us who care about the process.
0: And that stands in contrast to 2020, when the messaging around election integrity may have kept some Republicans home because they doubted the system. I hear you saying, please don't disengage. Um, we can
1: disengage. If we, if we want to win, it, it takes engagement. It takes getting out there. It takes voting, raising your voice, watching the process. It takes action.
0: Let's step back. I, I just want to know more about you, Christy Burton-Brown, new chairwoman of the Colorado Republican Party. When do you think you first identified as Republican? When did that idea fit well for you and what was going on in your life?
1: Well, so I will tell you, I was one of those nerdy teenagers who, instead of having banned posters on my wall, had political posters on my wall. So I have loved politics uh, since I can remember. Oh, what and... were the, What were
0: the posters you have to tell us?
1: Okay, George W. Bush. He is my favorite president. It was actually watching his election and, and the whole <laughs> debacle that happened in that election, the hanging chads and all of that. I was 13 during that election. And my mom let me stay glued to the TV, watch the election, everything go down. I recorded his speeches. That is actually when I fell in love with politics. So this is this is election.
0: 2000 when Florida is being kind of called for various candidates. Well, yes, Gore or Bush. I remember that very well. Yeah, And at that point, you've thoroughly identified as a Republican.
1: I did. I believe he was far more, his vision for the nation was far more inspirational. And then seeing as a young teenager his leadership on 9-11, that's another very clear date in my mind. Um, On that day I heard him speak, I heard him quote Psalm 23 to the nation in in a day that we all remember. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil,
0: for you are with me. This is a day when all Americans from every walk of life unite in our resolve for justice and peace.
1: That was very, very impactful for me. My dad sat my brothers and I down and said, you know what, now it's up to you to change the world. It is up to you. I was raised with that, that ideal. It is up to each of us to take the action we can to make a difference in a world that we live in.
0: One more aspect of your political history, Christy, is that you authored a personhood amendment uh, that failed on the state ballot. And I wonder what that experience taught you, one, and two, if you think that issue is one that will drive Republicans in the future.
1: So that experience taught me a couple of things. First of all, it's absolutely worth it when you are young to step up and get involved in politics. And I was 19 when I started that. The second thing it taught me is that I'll never apologize for wanting to defend the life of every child. Every child has the right to be born. Every child has the right to live their life. And that's a principle that we hold dear at the Republican Party. I think you'll see from the state party, us talk a lot about education and tax cuts and things that unaffiliated voters think about on a day-to-day basis. And that's the kind of messaging that you'll hear from us.
0: Uh, Some of your past political work includes a campaign to recall a Democratic state lawmaker that wound up being unsuccessful. I'll just note that two of the new state GOP leaders alongside you Priscilla Ron is vice chair now. Uh, she lost her bid for University of Colorado Regent. Marilyn Harris ran for State House at one point. That too was an unsuccessful bid. Is this a team that knows how to win an election?
1: Let me tell you what we won. We won a historic moment for Republicans in Colorado with with the victory of myself, Priscilla and Marilyn to lead our Republican Party. It is the first time in Colorado history that an all-woman team has ever been elected to lead either major party. So we are creating history and we're going to continue to do that as we brand the Republican Party in Colorado.
0: I'll say, though, Morgan Carroll, a woman, longtime head of the Colorado Democratic Party, um, Uh, One more question that touches on on something personal, but also gives us maybe a sense of your view of the world right now. Are you are you vaccinated and why or why not?
1: I don't believe that anyone should have to disclose their personal medical information just because they're in the public eye. So that's the stand that I would apply to anyone and I'll apply it to myself as well.
0: Is this a conversation that Republicans should be having?
1: Absolutely. I believe that anyone who wants the vaccine or needs the vaccine and believes they're vulnerable should go get it. It's available to people. I believe in people's individual choices when it comes to literally their body and their health. When we're talking about a vaccine, that's what we're talking about. Everyone has the right to make that choice for themselves.
0: Are you surprised by how partisan the conversation has been around COVID vaccines?
1: You know, I guess I'm surprised in general by how partisan and divisive conversations are in general. I mean, my parents taught me I was raised in a home where we always had discussions about everything. We had healthy debates. You could have a different view and discuss it. And I believe we need that in America again today. That's one thing I think the Republican Party needs to lead on here in Colorado is having open discussions where we can have different viewpoints and still come together and find out how to lead into the future. And, And I believe that because I have kids and I care about the state they grow up in, and I care about ending some of this divisiveness and accomplishing successes for people's jobs, their kids, and the American dream.
0: Is there a contradiction between your feelings on abortion, not giving necessarily women a choice there, but giving people a choice over vaccinations? Is there a contradiction in that?
1: No, there is not. When, we're, when a woman is pregnant, and I have two kids, I've been pregnant twice, There are two lives involved. Any choice that we make should never hurt another human being. But when we have a choice for ourselves and vaccination is a choice for you, for yourself, for your health, you have every right to make whatever choice you want on that one. When another person is involved, there should always be consideration of how our choices affect another human being, no matter how old or young they are.
0: Oh, goodness, though. But vaccines are about other people's health as well. I mean, that's what herd immunity is. So when you make a decision for yourself, it's not in a vacuum.
1: And and I just said anyone who wants a vaccine, anyone who believes they're vulnerable, many people believe they're vulnerable because of who they live with. And that is exactly how they're making their decision. I believe anyone who wants a vaccine and needs one should go get one.
0: We talked a bit about your confidence in elections at the state level. I want to note that Congress controlled by Democrats is proposing a major reform package known as HR 1. It has passed the House, awaits a vote in the Senate. And uh, my understanding, uh, Christy Burton Brown, is that you oppose HR 1. Would you let us know why?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, there's a ton of problems in HR 1. You have all the Democrats aren't even on board. It's not really even a partisan thing. There's so many errors in it. One of the things, specifically, that's very unpopular. With people when they're told the details of HR one, is that uh, it would force the government to help pay for candidates' campaigning, and match donations that are raised in campaigns. And most people, when you talk to them about that, they don't want the government paying for someone to run for office. So just it's an error-ridden bill. If we want to fix elections, give people more opportunity to vote, I'm in favor of both of those things. But HR one is certainly not the path to do it.
0: There's already some limited public funding for elections now so that that's not a break from tradition is it
1: oh it's absolutely a break from tradition it would be very very expansive under hr1 that's the last thing we need is our campaigns that should be run by average everyday people stepping up to lead their nation and their state controlled by the government and asking taxpayers to fund that that's not okay with most people you look at polls on that it's very unpopular
0: you you'd rather have say a big insurance company or oil and gas funding elections than, you know, than the government? I don't know. that It's just true that there's big money interests now. Uh, wouldn't you rather have a viewpoint neutral party making those investments?
1: I, I hardly think the government is viewpoint neutral. We, we've talked a lot about divisiveness on, on politics today, and that, that absolutely applies to the government. I mean, look at all the things Congress right now, and often throughout its history, can't accomplish because of partisan divides, and they're not working for the people. Bringing the government into deciding... How money is spent in political campaigns is about the worst idea I think anyone could come up with.
0: Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you for your time.
0: 33 year old constitutional law attorney Christy Burton Brown of Centennial. She's the new chairwoman of the state Republican Party. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. As lawmakers here try to fashion a public health insurance option, we'll check in on the lone state that's already done it. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.
1: As exhausting and overwhelming as it may sometimes be, I never question whether it is meaningful.
0: Public affairs editor Megan Verlee.
1: One of the great joys of my job is that the reporters I work with bring me stories they want to tell. And they're right. To be a part of helping bring the stories that they are passionate about to people, to bring these voices to people, is really meaningful work.
0: Listen for the work of the Colorado Public Radio Newsroom every day, here on CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. One of the biggest fights at the state legislature this year— is over how involved the government should be in private health insurance. Democrats are working on something called a public option with the goal of lowering premiums. Only one state has done something like this already, and our public affairs reporter, Andrew Kenny checked up on them.
6: Andy, which state is leading the way here? Well, we are following Washington, the state of Washington. Uh, they passed a law in 2019 and it created a whole new style of health insurance plan that just hit the market in November, actually. Oh. Uh, their plan is being called the first state-level public option, and Colorado's kind of following along there. And how does that compare to what's being debated in Colorado's legislature? They're actually really similar. Um, for one thing, I should say they're they're not really like public public options in the way a lot of people would understand it. Neither one has the government selling its own insurance or anything like that. Instead, they're both... I'm calling them public-private options. They try to force private insurers to sell a new type of insurance plan with certain benefits like lower deductibles, things like that. And then they also try to save money for consumers by limiting how much money the insurance companies have to pay to hospitals and doctors for their services. Okay. So the state would not be running an insurance plan. That's what I hear you saying.
0: That's right. It's just more regulation. Okay. How has this gone in Washington thus far?
6: Well, you hear a lot of apocalyptic talk about these kind of bills when they're introduced, but it's actually been a little underwhelming. The public option plan, as it's being called in Washington, isn't even really widely available yet. Insurers are only selling it in about half the counties in that state, and really very few people have actually bought it so far. There are fewer than 2,000 members in public option plans there at last check. Oh, well, yeah. Here's how Matt Fiedler put it. He's a fellow with the uh, USC Brookings Shaver Initiative for Health Policy.
5: So I think the lesson of Washington State is that details matter
6: tremendously. Washington has ended up creating a public option. It's just basically irrelevant. Not mincing words there. That doesn't seem like a promising start. No, it's not. Um, And to make things worse, you know, this plan is supposed to save money, but at least in its first few months, it's not actually the cheapest option in a lot of counties where it's being sold. Oftentimes, you can turn around and buy a private, non-regulated plan for a lower cost in a lot of those areas. I have to think this is ammunition
0: in Colorado for critics. So how are supporters of a so-called public option responding?
6: Yeah, it certainly has been ammunition. We've heard arguments and claims that well, look at Washington, the public option is driving up insurance costs. Um, but that's not necessarily a fair criticism, according to the experts I talk to. You know, for one thing, it's it's not affecting the costs of other plans. And there's also this consideration you have to make that you know while these Washington public options may have premiums that are a few percentage points more expensive per month, they also come with a bunch of other perks like lower deductibles, uh, lower out of pocket costs they can end up saving that money back for people. So I, I talked to one of the sponsors, Representative Eileen Cody in Washington, and, and she said that while it didn't deliver all the results they wanted yet, that they were still working on it. It's still a really new law.
1: Oh, I, I, I would easily say I was disappointed in this year, but but uh, I you know there were reasons for it, and we were making corrections.
6: And by the way, she also pointed to something else that Washington did with its new law that actually does seem to be working. Oh, what's that? Uh, well, so insurers in Washington also started selling this whole other class of plans without getting too far into the the details. They have a lot of the same benefits, like, uh, you know, lower deductibles, stuff like that. But they don't have that government intervention and in pricing, which is how I, I guess we're defining a public option. So, uh, you know, same benefits, less regulation. And they've actually proved to be really popular, even though their premiums are still a little bit higher. Something Colorado could look to. Uh, Andy, finish up by giving us a preview.
0: Where does the bill in Colorado stand? How much longer do lawmakers have to work on it?
6: It's one of the big bills that they have to finish in the next month plus before the session ends. But the Colorado bill seems to be moving ahead. The sponsors actually have a deal with some of the major industry groups who are going to be neutral on it. So, um, mm. The big question will be, like with Washington, what does it actually do? And some of the experts I talked to said that the Washington example points out that, you know, maybe it's not going to be the apocalyptic healthcare collapsing thing that people warn about, but it actually sometimes makes too small of a splash, (laughs) depending on which angle you're looking at it from. So uh, with Colorado, they'll be looking to see what passes and whether it can actually make a difference or not. Andy, thanks so much. Thank you.
0: CPR's Andrew Kenny telling us about a state Washington that's already down a health insurance path that Colorado's considering. <music> the pandemic hit hospitality workers especially hard and in the past year we've told many of their stories of layoffs, reduced hours and COVID fears. Now we're taking time to celebrate service people who've brought customers a little bit of light in these dark times. Bruce Rosard of Boulder wrote in to tell us about the royal treatment he gets at an Indian restaurant in Lafayette, Tandoori Kitchen. Most notably, the kindness that
5: Raj Gautam offers him. His parents started the business. I've always appreciated good service at restaurants and really anywhere. And, you know, since the pandemic, we've been doing takeout and curbside is always preferred. And we love Indian food, but actually we have to pass by another Indian restaurant to get to Tandoori Kitchen. And after the first or second time of having Raj be our, uh, you know, the guy who's bringing the food out to the curb and just welcoming us with a a smile and, you know, always remembers our names. And even if my wife's not there, he'll ask how Lynn's doing, my wife, and- He's just great. He feels
2: like a friend. Well, Raj, hi. Hey, Ryan. Thank you so much, Bruce. You know, when the pandemic first hit, we were very, it was very scary times for all restaurants and we we're a tight community here. So um, I remember when this thing first started, you know, we were thinking like, hey, what are we going to do? So, you know, we started doing the curbside model and it was a lot of people really enjoyed it. Uh, what we did is we launched our own app and, uh, Your own app, not,
0: not on the back of someone else's. Wow.
2: No, no. Yeah. So we took that time when uh, originally we closed the restaurant down. When, when this thing first started, you know, we didn't want to be spreading it or anything like that. So originally we just shut down. And in that time, what we did was we launched our app, got it ready for curbside. So now what it does is folks can order online and they, once they pull up here, You know, they can give us a call or if they like, when it's ready, the app will shoot them a text.
0: Who at the restaurant was able to help build an app? I mean, that's not a talent. Everyone has an ability.
2: Oh, it was me, Ryan. I did that. Everything is in-house here. The website is also, we do it in-house. Right now, especially, it's very easy to pay another company to handle a lot of these things. But I think the consumer gets lost, right? They want to support their local restaurant you know, whatever family restaurant it may be, but they have some bigger company running it where, you know, even if something happens, you might not be able to give that customer good customer service mm. because you don't really have access to the back end.
0: These middlemen are also taking, you know, uh, taking money. Sure, they, they charge, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah, it's a very large percentage as well. But, you know, I understand for people who don't have the ability to, uh, you know, get something like that launched when it's their only option, right?
0: No, you are the son of the owners. Do I have that right, Raj? And if if I checked out the web? Okay. Uh, The website says your dad was 25, your mom 24 when they opened the place, huh?
2: So my dad, he started his journey in the Bay Area 20 years ago. He opened his uh, first restaurant. I grew up basically inside the restaurant, you know, just ever since I was a kid, I was always kind of around. And I think that's what's kind of prepared me for my position now, just growing up around everything. And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my dad who started all 20 years ago, you know?
0: Yeah, Chris, there are a lot of kids who the first thing they do is run away from the family business and get the heck out of Dodge. Uh, Why do you think you stay?
2: Well, Ryan, I think we've got very close ties to the community, like Bruce, for example, too. You know, we've built these connections with people over the years and everybody's become like family. You know, they might've seen you grow up. Oh yes, sir. Yeah. There's plenty of folks that come from the, our previous locations that my dad, he's a little bit older, so he might not recognize, but they most definitely recognize him. Or if he's not here, they'll ask me about him or, you know, ask about me and say, oh, he used to be this little, you know. <laughs> um, it feels great to have these connections, you know, cause a lot of our family is overseas. So it seems like a lot of our customer base is our family.
5: I totally remember, Raj, your location at 55th and Arapaho, which is really close. Yes, sir. Yeah. And we used to go there quite a bit. And there was these little kids running around and you were one of them, Uh, I guess. Right. I didn't know at the time. And that's why I think when you first served us in the new location and I asked, are you the owner's son? And
2: I'm like, oh, okay, So you're one of those kids that was running around. I remember that conversation, Bruce. Yes, sir.
0: <laughs> oh wow. Has there been any difficulty, Raj, finding ingredients? I, I just know that like shipping has been really delayed. I mean, anyone who like yeah. uses Amazon has probably experienced that or ordered anything online. I, I just wonder if that affects food.
2: Yeah, definitely, it definitely did. I think there are still some shortages. Um, but yeah, there were tons, Ryan. In that past year, not only was the virus itself stressful, but there was also all kinds of logistics issues. Do you remember
0: anything in particular being hard to get?
2: Rice. So rice is usually pretty easy to get. And we use a specific type of rice, the basmati rice. That was really difficult to get. And then there were uh, limits on the rice as well. That was kind of a problem too, because we're used to buying pallets of rice at a time. And you now you walk into the distributor, they, they're only selling one. You know, how does that work? Wow. Right. Yeah, In the service business,
0: I mean, you talk about how close-knit the community is there in Lafayette, but in the service business, I know that people tend to speak up when they're ticked off. And here you have Bruce speaking up because he's happy. Is there a balance you deal with trying to
2: navigate, you know,
0: the happy ones and the unhappy ones?
2: Ryan, I totally, yeah, usually, so it's basically like 99.9% everybody's happy. Right. Okay. But sometimes if people have a bad day, we understand that, you know, these are crazy times. So we we try to deal with it with compassion or if we mess up, you know, then we make sure that we deal with that.
0: The compassion aspect is so lovely.
2: Well, thanks Thank so you. much, Raj,
0: Bruce. I appreciate your time.
5: Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you, Bruce. Ryan, it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to finally get on Colorado Matters. The show. <laughs>
0: A celebration of Raj Gautam of Tandoori Kitchen in Lafayette. His service stood out to Bruce Rosard of Boulder. And we still welcome your emails about top-notch hospitality in the pandemic. So email Matters at cpr.org. That's Matters at cpr.org. And uh, once again, we ask, please, that you have no financial affiliation with the establishment. Just a warm and fuzzy feeling. Poetry Out Loud exposes kids to literary greats and gets them comfortable in front of an audience. The national finals are this month with students reciting poetry. And representing Colorado is Aidan Reed of Fountain Valley School in Colorado Springs. Aiden, thanks so much for being with us.
3: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: I'm curious if you remember the first poem that ever really stuck out to you.
3: Well, I think that poetry is just such a part of your life that you don't even know it, but uh, where the sidewalk ends, I grew up on Shell Silverstein. Shel Silverstein. So,
0: yeah. Uh, well, I am considerably older than you and I love that <laughs> I'm I love that we have Shell Silverstein in common. What do you remember about where the sidewalk ends resonating and how old were you at that time?
3: I mean, at the time, I couldn't have been more than five, six years old, but uh, just being read to and being exposed to poetry in that sense. I mean, I also grew up reading Dr. Seuss, et cetera. Just silly poems, silly rhymes, but now that I have the opportunity to evoke that kind of emotion in others through the recitation of poetry. I mean, that's just a beautiful opportunity.
0: You said something a little earlier, which is that kind of poetry is all around us, in a way, Mm -hmm. kind of marinating in it. What do you mean? Say more about that.
3: Well, I mean, there are so many different senses of poetry, and I think that the things that you really don't think about, I mean, life is poetry in the way that it can be a narrative, it can be a short story, it can be rhymes, it can be something silly, and really... In your head or even your thoughts, you're really creating a poem of your experiences and your memories. That's how I always think of it. And I mean, it doesn't have to be this literary genius. It doesn't have to be this um, structured, this is the first stanza, this is the second stanza. It's just about creating an experience and evoking emotion through sensory experiences or even showing an audience how they can sense an experience.
0: This is fascinating because I think what I hear you saying is that our Mm self-talk could could be a form of poetry. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Oh, that's cool. Uh, Tell us briefly how this competition works. Like, what are you judged on?
3: Mm -hmm. So you're judged on presence, uh, you know, how you conduct yourself. You're judged on your recitation of the poem. I mean, your understanding of the poem. Do you understand what you're saying? Are you helping the audience understand what you're saying to a certain extent? I mean, poetry can be, while it can be surface and it can be self-talk, it can also be very depth. It can be illusions. It can be thick. It can be heart of darkness, hard to get through, you know. Um, but I, you're judged on basically all of that. And, you know, I think it's just, I don't even think about it as competing. I mean, it's just oh. a great opportunity. Now, will this be in person
0: or like the past year for you? Will Mm -hmm. this be a virtual presentation, which has to be so different when you don't have the immediate audience feedback?
3: Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, it's I believe that this is going to continue to be virtual. Uh, There will be uh, there's my understanding that there will be live interviews, which is going to be interesting. I'm not sure how they're going to conduct those. But I like mean... The,
0: they're interviewing you and getting a sense for your presence in those as well? Mm-hmm, oh, okay. Mm-hmm,
3: I, I believe so. so. But I don't believe... I don't think that your scoring is based off that. Ah. I think your scoring is completely the poems and just, you know, how you recite those. But uh, what... what, what
0: yeah, what? <laughs> well, is the virtual environment tough?
3: I don't know. I think... Here's, I mean, as a public speaker, I love to connect with an audience. You love to see how you can impact people. I mean, when you see someone crying in the audience, that I, it's fuel, not in a masochistic way, but in the way that you're <laughs> connecting with them. But, you know, I think that the virtual provides a lot more opportunity as far as speed and as far as, you know, there's no travel costs. So people <laughs> might be more, you know, enticed to actually compete and join us and you know just put a poem you really like out there.
0: It's democratizing, I think I hear you say.
3: Yeah. Uh absolutely. well speaking of
0: a poem you really like, um can, can we get a preview for what poem you've chosen or maybe one you've performed with in the past mm, competed with in the Okay, past?
3: I have I have three poems that I've performed. Uh The Days Gone By, uh My Therapist Wants to Know About My Relationship to Work, and I mean That one's really long, but hmm, let me... Oh, give us the
0: the top of that one. I feel like... My My therapist? I feel like people will relate to my therapist wants to hear about my relationship with work.
3: Okay. Um, Here, let me... So this is...
0: Now, is the recitation memorization or can you read it? Just...
3: Well, it's um, memorization, it but I don't, I don't want to mess it up.
0: Ah! <laughs> <laughs> we're going to let this slide this time, Aiden.
3: Okay. Okay. <laughs> I hustle upstream. And this is by Tiana Clark. I grasp, I grind, I control and panic. Poke balloons in my chest, always popping there. Always my thoughts, thump, thump. I snooze, wake and go, boom, all day like this. I short my breath, I scroll and scroll. I see what you wrote, I like, I heart, my thumb, so tired. My head bent down, but not in prayer, heavy from the looking. And that's, I mean, it's about social anxiety. It's about anxiety on social media. So I thought that that was gonna be really relatable. I mean, especially in the virtual age.
0: So you get to choose the poems. Mm
1: Absolutely,
0: yes. The thing that really resonated with me was I click. I mean, I just think about how many times a day I'm clicking. Clicking. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
3: I'm hearting, liking, keeping up, you know, solidifying your presence, which is just so interesting to me.
0: Yeah. Proving you exist, proving you matter. Hey, I'm
3: here and I like your food.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I like the photo of your lunch. Um, How do you see poetry fitting into your future aspirations? Like, what role will it play Mm -hmm. in your life going forward?
3: Well, I mean, I've always been into Model UN, argument, debate, stuff like that. And I think that poetry has really taken me on the narrative side of those things. I mean, public speaking is a beautiful opportunity. And, I mean, I love it. I crave it. I recently ran for student body president. Uh, you know, I'm just that kid. But I think that I, I really do see myself using it in the future. I mean, being able to talk to an audience and really get your, get your point across, get what you're interested in across. And I mean, you need that in work. You need to be able to solidify your presence and be like, hey, I'm here. This is what I think. And I'm well-spoken. So listen.
0: I love that you're not putting poetry in a box over here on a shelf, that mm-hmm. you see, once again, poetry in, in everyday interactions and in the in yeah. the speeches you might make. Uh, how did the election turn out?
3: Well, uh, voting just opened today, so we don't know yet. I know. Exciting.
0: Wait, when exciting. are you going to find out? Maybe we can update it.
3: I have no clue. I Maybe tomorrow. I think it'll probably be... You know how student elections go. I mean, we may never know.
1: We may (laughs) never know.
0: Aiden, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. 11th grader Aiden Reed attends Fountain Valley School in Colorado Springs. You can watch her compete in the National Poetry Out Loud Finals May 27th at poetryoutloud.org. We'll throw a link into the Colorado Matters podcast at cpr.org. And... We'll let you know if she wins student body president. Finally today, our knowledge of classical music, and in fact, American history, would be incomplete without understanding spirituals from slaves. Consider the influence of Deep River, Go Down Moses, and Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Our colleagues at CPR Classical are producing a year-long series called Journey to Freedom, The Spiritual's Radio Project. It's a collaboration with M. Roger Holland II.
4: The first utterance of sacred music by the enslaved community would have been on the slave ships when they sang or uttered moans and groans, but they had no real common language. And It wasn't until they had a grasp of the English language that they would have started to form their own songs.
0: Holland is assistant professor of African-American music and theology at the University of Denver's Lamont School of Music. He's also director of DU's Spirituals Project Choir. On a recent episode of Journey to Freedom, Holland reflects on the spiritual he-never-said-a-mumblin-word, which imagines what Jesus Christ endured during the crucifixion.
4: He never came to his defense. He didn't say anything. For most of that period, once he was arrested, he, he said nothing. On the cross, he said nothing. And therefore, the slave community interpreted that he was suffering, but he didn't say a mum. He said nothing, not even a mumbling word. He suffered in silence.
0: Here is a performance of The Spiritual by baritone Kevin D. Johnson, accompanied by Dr. Nicholas Catravis at the piano. Dr. Holland says the spiritual continues to carry a profound message today with those fighting for racial justice.
4: If we look at that spiritual, he never said a mumbling word. Even though Black people are protesting, when our voices are not heard and being silenced, it's the same thing. It's like suffering in silence because nobody is hearing. And so our voices are muted.
0: CPR.org, learn more about He Never Said a Mumbling Word and other songs featured in this series from CPR classical Journey to Freedom, The Spirituals Radio Project. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our
6: team Carl Bielek,
1: Allie Butner,
6: Anthony Cotton, Andrea
1: Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher,
6: Matt Hers, Michael Hughes,
1: Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill.
6: Pedro Lumbrano.
1: Patrice Mondragon,
0: Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Monica Castillo. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.